Today's sponsors of this episode of the Duke Basketball Report podcast are the boys of Bird Campbell, PA, your Duke-centric law firm. Lawyers by vocation, but Duke grads by the grace of God, Bird Campbell means business. Hey, Duke fans, welcome to episode 117. That is a huge number of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. We are recording this on Monday, April 9th, and there has been a bit of news to talk about, but we have something special this evening. Before we get into all that, I'm Donald Wine, your host this week. With me always, my compañeros. First off in Denver, Colorado, we have Sam Klein. Sam, what's up, man? Donald, good to hear from you. It's been a while, uh, and I'm excited to talk about all the little things we have to talk about today. Yeah, we have quite a few little things, but before we do that, we have in Atlanta, Georgia, in Atlanta, Georgia, not Georgian. He's not Georgian. He's the man, Jason Evans. Jason, how was your weekend? Oh, so I had such an interesting weekend. I'm glad you asked me. I was in Philadelphia for the weekend because my son attends Penn, University of Pennsylvania, and he uh, he's recently inducted as a pledge, or, or sorry, as a brother to ZBT, and this was Penn ZBT Father-Son Weekend. And and so we we on Saturday night, I went out to dinner with my son and you know, 60 of his of his uh, fraternity mates, as well as 60 other dads. And then afterwards, we went back to the frat and we played dad, son, beer pong. Um, nice. Far, far, far into the night. We started at around 11 and it ended at like 2 a.m. Um, and uh, so it was this big tournament. It was like an NCAA tournament bracket. Okay, there were like 64 different teams, and the only thing that mattered to any of the dads was, oh, my God, do not lose your first game. Don't embarrass your son. Don't, you know, throw 15 air balls in a row. Please hit one or two before, of the cups. Jason, Jason, before yes. you finish this story, I don't know what odds to put on you lost in the first round or you won the whole thing. Um, <laughs> just, know that it's, just know that that's the only thing I'm waiting for, so get to it. So, unfortunately, it comes in the middle. We made the final eight which I think was pretty darn good. We That's would good. have made the final four. We had we had one cup left. It was one to three, and we couldn't hit that last cup. It just took us forever, and we just couldn't get it, and so we fell in the final eight. But my son's roommate uh, came in second, which is and the two of them for freshmen, like freshmen don't usually do this well because the dads of like the juniors and seniors have done this for several years. I had never played beer pong before, but I was a stud. So, hey. Was, was your son sure. better than expected? Because you know how it is. He probably was like, yeah, I don't need to tell my dad that I'm that good at beer pong as a freshman. He was good. He wasn't great. There were a couple of guys who were really, really good. We we basically won because he carried me a little bit the first match, but then we were we both were doing pretty well the next couple of matches, um, and that's why we won. There were some of the guys where I was like, well, this guy doesn't go to class at all because he does nothing but throw ping pong balls into beer cups. I had we had a um, when I was in school, our fraternity had a parents' weekend. And we were playing like a rapid fire version of beer pong that involves like lots of throwing the ball back and forth a, a lot. And there's a lot of cups of beer. And one of my friend's parents could not get a handle on the fact that every time you threw, you didn't have to then take a drink of the beers in front of you. So they lost really quickly. Um, so you did, <laughs> you did better than my friend's parents did a few years ago. Yep. Yep. I, I was just like the Duke Blue Devils. That's I only right. made the final. I made the final eight. All right. Well, there you go. 
So, guys, we mentioned that we are going to start off the show with something special. If you all recall, before the NCAA tournament began, we had our annual DBR bracket challenge. But this year, we said that the winner of the bracket challenge would get to appear on a segment on this very show with the three of us and talk about whatever topic they wish to discuss. Well, ladies and gentlemen, after a hard-fought tournament and over 215 participants, thank you all of you out there for participating. But there was only one winner. By one point, the winner of the bracket challenge was Ed Armstrong. And accordingly, we would like to introduce you all to Ed, who has been kind enough to join us this evening. Ed, congratulations and welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, guys. Uh, it's a thrill to be on. Well, first off, Ed, why don't you tell the people a little bit about yourself and how you got to join the DBR community? Okay, I graduated from Duke in 1989. I know I'm dating myself a little bit there, but class uh, of '89. Yes, that's right. Class of '89. We were we classmates. Did, we did Jason all the time, so it's fine. <laughs> so I uh, I grew up a my mom attended Duke, so I grew up a an ACC basketball fan and a Duke fan before I attended Duke. Then being at Duke, as I know you all can attest to, uh, it makes you even more rabid in your fandom. And so for the last, you know, over 30 years, I've been a, a big Duke fan, obviously a big sports fan as well. So I've been listening to the podcast, the DBR podcast, for about the last year and a half, and I really enjoy it. I think you guys do a great job. Well, we appreciate that, and we really appreciate you being on. I know uh, for us it takes sometimes a few days for us to, to get things in line, so we appreciate you being flexible with us uh, to join us tonight. Now – Ed, we're getting to the moment of truth. You have the opportunity to talk with us about one topic of your choice. But before we do that, Jason has a question for you. Yeah, Ed, I, I have to know something. First of all, tell us what your final four was. I mean, you managed to win this pool. Uh, like Donald said, 200-plus participants, really impressive. Tell us what your final four was. That's part one. So answer that. So I had, I had Villanova and Michigan in the final game, got lucky with those two picks. And then I believe I had Arizona and, and Kansas. I had Kansas as well in the, in the final four. So I had three final four teams in with Arizona in, I think that was the West region. So, um, so, so to be clear, mom went to Duke. You went to Duke. Lifelong Duke fan. You picked us to lose to Kansas? I did. I did, and I and it's funny. I only picked Duke to win the tournament, you know, in the brackets, maybe six or seven times. It's sort of the thing where you go, I don't want to jinx us if I pick us type thing. And okay. which I know is silly, but but that's kind of the way I've approached it. This year, I just didn't think Duke could put six games together in a row. I just didn't feel it, and I felt that it was obvious to me this year. And sometimes you're right, sometimes you're not. That Villanova was by far the best team. So that well, it was easy in that regard. So congrats, but I couldn't resist needling you for being a Duke fan who didn't pick Duke to win. But hey, it's okay. He Sorry. got the he got the he got the game. He won the game. So Oh, big time. I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know how much we And you know, it's funny. Um we we discussed our final four picks like here on the show and we've got Ed's here and and, and you know, folks who have looked at the bracket challenge have seen everybody else's picks. I didn't do like a count, but I wonder if Michigan was almost as popular of a final four pick in the DBR bracket challenge as Duke was because they were like the, the hottest team in their region coming into the tournament. 
and they were in Carolina's region, so no one's going to pick Carolina. It seems like I talked to so many people who who picked Michigan, and, and as did our champion. Um, so that was just something interesting to note. Donald, why don't we uh, why don't we get started with the actual agenda today? Yeah, here we go, Ed. The moment is yours. The floor is yours. You get to talk to us about one topic of your choice. So what are we discussing this evening? Okay, so the, I thought about this a little bit, and I guess the most recent news on the coaching front with Coach K, you know, signaling that he's going to – that he feels great and he's likely to coach for the foreseeable future. So I, I thought about that. On the one hand, that's great to have, you know, the greatest of all time at the helm again. But I've I've worried about that since that since the announcement and since Capel has left because I feel like the continuity of, you know, over the intermediate and long term of the Duke program and that transition from Coach K to whoever it is is now going to be a lot more difficult. I'm wondering and so I'm wondering how you guys feel about that. Do you have any concerns about, you know, the the coaching transition? Maybe I shouldn't worry about it because, you know, he is 71 years old. But how do you guys feel about the, the transition? And do you think this move by Capel is a is a is a detrimental thing toward that? I think it could be. I'll, I'll take it first. I think that the move by Capel, first of all, is great for Capel. We talked about that extensively, I think, on the last show. Um, for the Duke program, I don't know that we can get that spun up about it, not knowing what Coach K's timeline is. And I think that we have, we on the show, n- not so much, more so the, you know, general college basketball media the last, I don't know, 10 plus years has continually speculated, oh, Coach K has four or five years left. It seems like Coach K has been four or five years away from retirement basically since I matriculated at Duke. And 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 I would still say today, how long do you think Coach K has? I'd say at least he has three or four more years. So until we get a lot closer to knowing definitively when that end time is, I'm not going to freak out too much. I think that the other thing to keep in mind about the Duke coaching tree and how much uh, attention we pay to former players who are assistants under Coach K and then who then go off and take the helmet at other programs and might be in line to become the next coach, we freak out about that a lot. But when you look at other major programs, they've all struggled in their own ways to replace retiring legendary coaches like Coach K. You look at Dean Smith, you look at John Wooden, you look at Adolph Rupp, all these guys, they've had a hard time replacing. And ultimately, the replacements aren't necessarily alumni of the school, right? John Calipari uh, and Rick Pitino didn't, didn't go to Kentucky and they weren't Kentucky guys. They both had success at Kentucky, and and John Calipari continues to have success there. Roy Williams was an assistant under Dean Smith, but it took Carolina two other coaches in between, and what like six or seven years before before Roy Williams was there to to bring them back to prominence. So I think worrying about it now isn't that big a deal. However, I do appreciate that it's something that we want to think about because we do want to try to avoid those lull years that those other programs have had. Like I said, Carolina went through it, especially under Matt Doherty. Um, UCLA sort of like, I, I think they almost escaped it. They haven't won a national champion or they, I guess they did win the national championship in 95, but they've been through a pretty rocky transition. Indiana, I don't think has ever gotten back to where they were under Bob Knight. So 
uh, it, it's a thing to think about, but I don't think it's a thing that we as fans need to actively worry about or, or really, you know, get into deep conversations about until we know that Coach K is retiring and who and that we know who the replacement is because we'll know a lot more about their resume at that time. Yeah, I agree. And and really the continuity exists in the fact that we have coaches that don't have a learning curve. They know what the program's about. They know what the environment is in Durham at Duke. Uh, and even when you have people leave, like for example, Jeff Capel left, we get Chris Carwell back, a guy who has been in the program as a player and as a coach, and, and we know what to expect from him. He knows what to get out, what to expect as far as the rigors of the program. So I think the continuity is there. And I, I think even with these changes, you see that because we have guys who have been a part of this, it's the the transitions are going to be much smoother. Uh, you're you're going to have, you know, Nolan Smith is moving into a more prominent role. He's going to be around these players a lot more. He he understands these players. The players get him, have a rapport with him, have a rapport with Chris Carrawell. Even when we had, if you think about it, back to 2013 and 14, we lost Chris Collins in one year. The next year, we lost Steve Wojciechowski and Chris Carrawell. And the next year after that, we won the national championship. So, and it was because we got, you know, guys like Chris, uh, Jeff Capel back, uh, Nolan Smith came, John Shire came, and these guys understood the program. There was no transition period, or at least a very little transition period. The learning curve was a lot less. And these guys were able to, you know, dive in and, and, and start swimming. And, and I think that's the real key here, um, because I think that is where the continuity lies, is in the fact that we all know, they, they all understand what the brotherhood represents. And if they can do that part, all the rest of it's going to fall in the line a lot quicker. Uh, I want to I want to offer ahead. like a I want to offer you a counter thought, and then I want to <laughs> send it to Jason. That um, is there a concern that we 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 fret about this so much, and the Duke program appears to fret about it so much because they bring in so many former players that when the time comes, the power struggle, for lack of a better term, that will ensue over becoming the next head coach and and all the different voices I think that'll get involved because it won't just be people who are at Duke. It won't just be coach K and, and Kevin white or whoever the athletic director is. It's going to be every prominent alumnus. It's gonna, Shane Battier will, will be asked what he thinks about the next head coach. Christian Leitner will be asked. Danny Ferry will be asked. All these guys will, will end up having, even if they don't have a say in the process, their voices will be heard. And I wonder if that might be, uh, more detrimental to the process than trying to focus a lot on who exactly is going to carry on Coach K's legacy the best. Um, so, Jason, did you have a thought about that? Yeah, a couple of things. The first one is uh, regarding what you were just talking about. While I think a lot of these guys will be asked about it, I think all of them sort of know that it will be their job to say, I don't know. It's up to Duke to decide. I've got no opinion on the matter. Um, uh, you know, they know that it would look bad and be difficult if they were all lobbying for different people. It's just, it's, and coach K runs a tight ship. He's a military guy. He's not going to allow that kind of thing to happen. In fact, my bet is that when coach K does decide to step, uh, decide to step down, they will have a, you know, a replacement already in place. Duke won't go through a coaching search in my opinion. Um, they, if they, and if they do, it will be done quietly, surreptitiously before it is announced that coach K is stepping down. That's just, that's just my guess. 
Um, but back to what Ed originally asked, I, I would point out to folks that staff in, you know, 86 when we made our first Final Four, in 91 when we won our first national title, the aggregate amount of experience of the guys on the staff was less than, than what it is today, merely because Coach K was so young back then, um, even though he had, you know, moderately experienced assistant coaches, especially Pete Gaudette, um, when they won the national title. Uh, you know, the, the, the total amount of coaching experience, the total uh, years of coaching experience on the staff was probably less in 1991 than it is today because you got an extra almost 30 years of Coach K's experience that you can add to uh, to to uh, the experience of the staff. Uh, the bottom line, I think, even though Kay is bringing in, you know, younger guys who aren't super experienced, they are all, without fail, guys who have been part of the Duke program. They have seen what Duke has done in recent years. Uh, you know, almost without fail, they are guys who were here for three or four years, at least. Uh, I, I need to think about it for a second. I think all of them were here for four years now that I think about it. So they may not have a ton of experience as assistant coaches, but in terms of how Duke runs things, they've got a lot of experience. And so I'm not, I'm not all that worried about it. At this point, the Duke basketball program, Coach K has this, it is a finely oiled machine in terms of the operation behind the scenes, the things the coaches have to do, the way they have to teach these players and the such. K's got a lot of that stuff. It's clear he's got that stuff figured out. There are multiple layers of technology and information and all kinds of other stuff that go into it. Um, I think that if he felt he needed someone who had 10 years, 15 years in the business already, he would go out and get that person. The fact that he's getting guys who are fairly new to coaching or who graduated from Duke in the past decade or so, that says to me that he knows that's what he wants um, and that he doesn't want or need something else because he's the GOAT. He could get what he wants. You know, Ed, actually, let me let me talk about you asked the question. You clearly had concerns about it. Talk, talk to us a little bit. Give us your thoughts on whether you think this is something that really, really concerns you. And is your concern about a successor or is it about the success of next year's team? The I guess my I just feel like the older Coach K is, the longer he goes on and continues, the harder that transition is going to be. I think back to when Dean Smith, you know, retired and that was obviously he orchestrated it so that he could get Bill Guthridge in. But I just think the longer it goes on, the tougher that transition is going to be. And I just feel like Capel, had he remained on the staff, obviously he chose not to do that. It was probably a mutual thing. It would have been a much easier, smoother transition to have him in place, whether it's with recruits or player development, whatever it might be to make the transition you know, to the new coach easier because it is going to be an unbelievably monstrous task to step in for Coach K when that does happen. Um, and so now that he's 71, I think we can all agree that day is getting closer. But I do in the, in the short run, I think it's great to have him back as the bench boss. But I just feel in my heart that it's going to be tougher. The longer he goes, the tougher that transition is going to be, especially if there's not a guy there in waiting already. I, I'm a little surprised at that, that you would say that you're concerned about that because it's not someone who's there. Because I feel like 
I mean, look, we can tick off the names. Is it Amaker? Is it Capel? Is it Collins? Is it Wojo? And there are probably some other names that are out there that that people could. Is it Bobby Hurley? There are names that people could toss out that we would go, yeah, that one makes sense. You, you know, I can't argue against that one. And that's um, only and that's only Duke guys. I mean, that, that's assuming yeah. that Duke doesn't go get a prominent head coach from another college program or an NBA coach because Duke's probably one of the few programs that could go get an NBA coach. Right. Uh, we're not even thinking about those guys. But 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 the thing I was going to say was. I don't feel like if it's one of the Duke guys, um, I don't feel like the transition is going to be the transition is going to be difficult from the standpoint of Coach K is the greatest. Um, and 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 as Sam um, articulated, we've seen a lot of programs where um, the, the process of replacing the great coach that, that built the program was very, very difficult. It's it's pretty rare that it goes very, very smoothly. So I'm not saying that, but. If it's a guy that was part of the program, and I think it probably will be, um, then it's someone who knows what's going on. And whether he was sitting on the bench next to Coach K two months ago or whether he sat on the bench next to Coach K four or five years ago or eight years ago or 15 years ago and has been doing his own program for a while, I don't see that. I just don't see that as like, an oh, my gosh, that's going to cause extra problems. Maybe I'm wrong. But, you know, if Capel goes off and coaches at Pitt for three, four, five years and then gets called back, if if Collins continues to be successful at Northwestern, then gets called back, uh, Wojo at Marquette, Bobby, whatever it may be, these guys are all doing various levels of success and head coaching, running their own program elsewhere. I, I think that's a plus as opposed to having someone who isn't as experienced as a head coach, but who is sitting there on the bench next to him. I mean, yeah, see, I, I look, felt like Capel. Hang on, really quick. Look no yeah. further than UNC. Bill Guthridge had been Dean's guy, had been next to Dean forever. Um, and most people would agree that transition did not go very well. It wasn't until they went out and got the guy who'd been a part of the program and had been hugely successful at another program in Roy Williams that they got the train back on track. That's right. But I, first of all, Capel's had two head coaching stints already. One where he was he's fairly successful at both, not, not great, but, but has run other programs. Guthridge had never done that. So it's just going to be, it's going to be difficult no matter what I think. And I just felt like Capel was the ideal transition coach. So, and I'm, I, I just believe it won't happen now because I think he's going to go to Pittsburgh which I think is an odd view, uh, move in itself to, to stay within the league, but I, we'll see. I hope it works out, um, and whatever happens, we'll get a good coach. That, that's your guys are right to bring that up. I just feel like he would have been perfect in, in a role like that, but obviously that's not going to happen. So, and, and um, I don't think it'll, I don't think there's a blueprint, right? You're you're sort of alluding to it. There isn't there isn't a great blueprint for what's going to happen at. Duke when Coach K retires. And I think that the program is trying to set one up. Um, we don't exactly know how it's going to work out, but they don't have another school to look to to say, yep, we want to do it exactly like they did it because I don't think anyone has mastered that transition yet. Yeah, that's fair. Very fair point. The One other topic, if I may, I went back, and I think we've all alluded to this in our conversations as we talk about Duke basketball it's been pretty apparent that with the freshmen and the one and done and all the freshman minutes that have been played each year, 
that we have really suffered from lack of upper class development and contribution. And if you go back and look at all the titles that Duke has won, even as recent as 2015, you had three upperclassmen that year that played significant minutes. I went back and looked it up. Matt Jones played 800 minutes in 2015. Emil Jefferson played 800 minutes. And Marshall Plumley played almost 400 minutes, believe it or not, in 2015. And when you look at the team this year, only Javin Delorier got close to the minutes that Marshall Plumley played. And so I really believe that the one thing that has been missing, and it's sort of obvious in this um, in this in this one and done era, is that we haven't had as as good of player development as we need. And I'm hoping that that's something that gets emphasized this year. And I know we're bringing in four great freshmen, but what do you guys think about that? Because it's clear that some of these other teams, whether it's Carolina last year and the year before that we've been losing and been you know, beaten by teams that have more experience, maybe not better players, but more experienced players. Yeah. I, I think in the end, it's hard to say, right there. I think the, the era of college basketball kind of plays into that with the player development in, in kind of gearing all of your development towards these players who may or may not be one and done. And I think in this case, you have a guy like, you know, you mentioned Javin Delorier. Uh, I think he's poised for have a great season, a big season for us next year, a very important season. But I think also another guy who I would think would make the step up and really serve well is someone who came on kind of late for us last year in this past season, and that's Marquise Bolden. You know, those two guys, with the, the classes coming in next year, we are going to have a real issue with leadership. And we had a, this year, we, we had those questions this year with only, you know, one senior and Grayson Allen playing. So I, I think the question is, can Marquise Bolden, can Javid Delorier, uh, can Antonio Vrankovic, and, and some of these guys that are currently on the team serve as a leader, as a real leader who can tell these guys what Duke basketball is all about, what they have to expect, how to get better, how to get stronger, and use those summer months to really gel as a team uh, with the new guys. Because I think if they could do that, then we're poised to have a great year. If we can't do that, then we're going to be ripe for issues that we've seen in years past when we don't have great leadership on the floor. Uh, so I think that's really the key here. Uh, the player development really stems from these guys, you know, that are on the team need to, you know, really improve leader leadership wise and make it so that it's their team. And even when these, you know, one and done freshmen come in, it's their team. And, and they get to uh, command what Duke basketball is about and how we play. Uh, Jason, do you agree with that? Well, so uh, I've got, Ed, you're going to love this part of my answer. I think this is part of what Coach K is doing with the young assistant coaches. He doesn't have... Um, he doesn't have lots of experience in the program. That's the nature of the new one-and-done era for Duke. And so when he has young assistant coaches, those guys can provide the leadership because they can relate to the other young guys on the team. Um, I, you know, I, I really think we're talking about assistant coaches who are, in some cases, you know, 
three, four years out of graduating from Duke, they're still the same generation as these guys, and they can still relate to them. Um, Jason, and Jason I, can I, can I, can I yeah. protest? I, Nolan Smith Go. is the young member of the coaching staff, and he and I are the same class, and we graduated seven years ago. Okay, fine. Fine. <laughs> I, I the, the the point is taken though. Continue. But but I but just in general, I think. I mean, look, I, John Shire. I, these are guys. John Shire, Nolan Smith. These are still relatively young guys. They can relate to what these players are going through. And then the other thing I wanted to say on this topic is, folks, there's a reality here, which is that Mike Shashevsky wants to coach the best. I think that it all stems from his stint. Uh, you know, on the uh, with the Olympic teams and the World Championship teams, he wants to coach the absolute best players that he can. So he's not going to go for the guys who are oh ranked in the twenties, thirties, forties, and are going to stick around for three or four years. He's going to go for guys who are ranked in the top five in the recruiting rankings because those are the best players. Those are the most exciting players. Those are the players he wants to teach, and those are the players he wants to have the lifelong relationship with. And so, uh, you know, it may suck and it may be difficult for us as fans in terms of rooting for guys that um, we're only getting to see them for a few months and then they're gone. But I think that's the reality. And Coach K has earned the right, in my opinion, to pick the kind of player he wants to coach. And I think it's pretty clear what he has picked and what he's chosen. I think you guys both made good points. I would just add the sort of warning caveat that the last two years Duke has underperformed, I think, relative to our expectations with a lot of talent. And like Ed points out, sort of that lack of, of upperclassmen, you know, returning minutes and, and leadership this year, this coming year, the 18, 19 season, we're probably going to be in, in even worse, uh, in a worse situation than we in, than we have been in previous years on that front. So like when we when we're doing the stats prediction game in in November at the start of the eighteen nineteen season, don't be surprised if I pick another, if I pick a a win total that's in the twenties and not in the thirties. And I think that that's due in large part to this because Duke will have the talent next year, like they did this year, to compete with anybody. But I think there will be a lot of there will be a lot of up and down moments where the team doesn't know who to turn to. I, I am concerned about it. Um, I think that that they're talented enough to weather uh, a lot of those challenges, but, but we'll see going forward before uh, Ed, before we, before we get you out of here, um, we did want to see if you had any questions for us, like about the show or anything here, or um, if, if you're kind of, kind of satisfied with your Duke basketball podcast experience. That's a, let me, couple questions. Um, first of all, how do you come up with the topics Obviously, I know you a lot during the season, you're recapping games, previewing games. But how do you all think about topics for each podcast? Do you assign it to – do you get together and talk about it? Or do you assign it each week? I'm just curious how you guys think through that during the year. So it's kind of an ongoing process. Like we're, we're constantly – we have a, a group text that we use. And we – like to like if there's if there's interesting articles or or news items we always share them with each other and when we know that we're about to do an episode we'll kind of 
uh, run back through all the stuff that happened most recently or, or since we last recorded and kind of compile those into topics. And usually it, it works out nicely like this, that each of us kind of focuses on different things as it's going on. So like one person might be hung up on a particular article or a particular piece of news or something or some some quote that a player had or a, or a coach or a parent, something like that. Um, and so we end up dividing the topics based on the things that pique our interests most. And then you, so you'll, you'll, you'll kind of hear like one person sort of take the thing and then the other guys will react to it. Um, and that's usually one of us being particularly passionate about a certain thing. As far as like the, the setup of the show, we, we, we sort of redo it each time. We know a lot of the topics, like you said, during the season, we're, we're talking about the games and we'll tell you what's coming up and what just happened. Um, but, but it's, it's pretty, it's pretty organic. We don't have like a very specific script. Um, I think that the, the key is that we know all the things that we should be talking about because like we all read and participate on the DBR forum. Um, we read everything that about Duke basketball that we possibly can. And so we like to talk about the things that we like to talk about because we're, we're the Duke fans and we're doing the show for other Duke fans. Yeah, when one other one, do you what adjustments do you are do you, when you look forward to the next year, do you think you'll change things? One of the things that I've enjoyed has been the interviews. I know they're not always easy to get. First of all, the Kenny Denard interview was uh precious. But most, uh, and I that know that's, easily, that, that is a that, great that, word to describe it. Easily <laughs> the most fun. I I think I, I may have said it on the show, but I was on mute for most of that interview and howling at a lot of his answers. funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, he was. Uh, he, he's great to get every year, obviously. But do you do you think you'll do more of that? I, I think you guys interviewed the beat reporter. There have been a lot of really interesting. You had Joss Pathner one time. I think Jason interviewed him. Those things are really great. Do you do you envision doing more of that? Or is it just, is it, does it have to be circumstantial or whatever's opportunistic that comes around? So I'm going to let you in on something. Um, I'm I'm the interview guy for the most part. I pursue the interviews. You can't imagine how much effort it, and time it takes to line up these interviews most of the time. Um, I, I, I I send numerous emails um, to uh, to sports information directors and PR people and things like that. Um, generally they get ignored. Uh, I will, uh, I will tweet at people that I want to interview, um, again and again and again and again. And uh, Jason you know, doesn't, and Jason doesn't tweet at me. So you know that he's never. serious. <laughs> never. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, it's hard to get the interviews. And then the other calculus in it is when we get when we get an interview, it means that the podcast is going to be extra long. If we get an interview and it's in the middle of the season and there are a couple games going on and then something else happens with the program, suddenly we run into a situation where we're like, oh, you know, oh my gosh, we've got, you know, an incredibly packed episode. Um, and, and we try to avoid those to, to some extent because it's tough for people to listen for more than, you know, hour, hour and 10 minutes or so. So, you know, that's that's part of the challenge and all this stuff. But yes, I want to get more and more interviews. In fact, I had no idea you were going to ask this, but I have a list on my computer of people that I am reaching out to currently to get interviews. Um, and, and I happen to just be looking at it tonight. Uh, this list is that I know I'm going to get. These are not people that I even necessarily have their email addresses. These are people I'm going to be attempting to reach out to. I'm not going to even mention all the Duke, former Duke players 
because there's a myriad of them that I reach out to all the time and rarely hear anything. But here is my current list that I was trying to get that I'm going to try and get in the off season. You ready? Ken yep. Jeong. <laughs> oh, that'd have, be great. I have to get Ken. Adam Silver. Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple. These are all Duke graduates. Charlie Rose, Kevin Streelman, a Duke graduate who is a very successful PGA Tour pro. David Robinson, whose son, of course, is at Duke. And Jessica Springsteen, daughter of Bruce Springsteen and a former Duke student. So that's my current list. Hey, hey, Jason, hey, who, who, who among those should I go for the most? I think Ken Jeong, right? Yeah, that would be, that's got to be top. Jason, add Lisa Borders to that list because she's the WNBA commissioner and she also went to Duke. I love it. Lisa and Borders now, is a great addition. And now I, we I and now we've ruined uh, some future episodes. Hopefully. <laughs> oh yeah. So, that's so, so wait. So let just, me be clear. I'm probably I'm probably going to go 0 for eight on the. I have eight names in this. I'm probably going to go 0 for eight. But uh, but Ed, the the real answer to your question is we agree. We love the interviews. Uh, they are almost always the best episodes. Um, and, and, and to be honest, people who get interviewed by Duke tend to have good things that happen to them. Quinn Cook was interviewed by us and he got a pro contract. So yes, yeah, that's right. That's the, that's the DBR bump right there. Yep. <laughs> well, you know what guys, this was awesome, but sadly, I think this is, uh, this concludes our time that we have with Ed Armstrong. Ed, thank you so much for coming on the DBR podcast. We, we had you on for like, 40 minutes because uh, this was such an engaging conversation. Uh, we Congratulations on winning the bracket challenge. Uh, you have to come back next year to defend your title, but hopefully we will see you again down the road. Thanks a lot, guys, and keep up the good work. All right, we appreciate it. Take care. Today's podcast is proudly sponsored by two Duke alums and former roommates of the class of 1978, Jamie Campbell and Tucker Bird, both diehard Duke followers and the founders of Bird Campbell PA, a Duke-centric business law firm with offices in Dallas, Orlando, and the Gulf Coast. If you are in need of legal advice and live in one of these areas, reach out to them at birdcampbell.com. Bird Campbell says at any time of year, go to hell, Carolina, and we thank them for their support of the podcast. All right, gentlemen, we need to get to some news out of Duke that came over the last week with very little surprise. Uh, first off, Trayvon Duval and Gary Trent both announced their intention to declare for the 2018 NBA draft. That leaves Wendell Carter as the only freshman starter left that has yet to officially declare. But since his mom all but did so a couple weeks ago, it's only a matter of time before he becomes the fifth starter to go. Both Duval and Trent's departures came with some pointed comments by family members of the two and it prompted articles on whether these players are allowed to fully realize their talents while at Duke, and if that's something that should be Duke's responsibility for the year that these players are there. Jason, I'm going to start with you. You can take this discussion wherever you think it needs to go regarding Duval and Trent both going to the draft. You know, it is a very difficult thing because there's no way to know what goes on in practice. There's no way to know the you know, the talents and abilities of these players beyond what we see on the floor. So, you know, if if Trevon Duval's family feels like, and Trevon Duval himself, you know, I, I don't know that they feel this way. I haven't seen any quotes about that. But if they feel like he could have been utilized differently at Duke um, and that he would be more successful 
you know, in a different kind of offense or doing something different. It's hard for me to say, no, they're wrong. Duke did exactly what they should have done with him. I just, there's no way for us as fans to have enough information about these players. But I will merely say this, and especially, you know, as it relates to to Gary Trent, who, whose dad very vocally said that that Duke didn't let him show his full game. I don't understand how someone could think that Coach K intentionally suppressed a kid's game in favor of some other player developing. The implication when when you are saying that Gary Trent could have done so much more for this team, it could have showed better things for this team, or Trevon Duvall could have showed better things for this team. The implication is that Duke could have been better and more successful with those guys playing different roles. I'm not sure how any of us can say we know better than Coach K what would have made this team succeed. The implication that Gary Trent's father is making is that Coach K didn't see his son's talents or Coach K didn't recognize that Gary Trent could do more than he did, I guess. I, you know, I'm not even sure I understand it. Either that or he's implying that, that Duke intentionally held Gary Trent down. And, and that makes no sense to me because Coach K's ultimate goal is to win another national title and it's to have, you know, as much success on the court as he possibly can. And so the idea that we, you know, that, that we made these kids worse than they could be, it doesn't make any sense to me. It sounds to me like the rationalization of someone who, whose kid has always been the best on the floor. Every single time he stepped on the floor, no matter where he was throughout his entire life, and then suddenly arrived at Duke and maybe wasn't the best player on the floor anymore. No shame in that. We had a starting lineup of five guys who were all going to play in the NBA. No shame in not being the best player on the floor. Because on the floor at almost all times this year was a guy who most people think could be one of the all-time greats in the NBA. He's going to be one of the top two, top three picks in the NBA draft. But for Gary Trent's father, it was probably hard for him to rationalize that his son wasn't the best player on the floor anymore. So he was like, wait, I've seen Gary dominate games in this way and that way. And Gary couldn't do that at the college level. Again, no shame in that. But I think you know maybe, funny? yeah, fin finish that thought. I was say, I wanted yeah, to I was about to wrap. I, was, I, th I think maybe what we're hearing is a little bit of, you know, disappointment, sour grapes kind of stuff, um, as opposed to a dispassionate analysis of what those players can really succeed at. Yeah, go. You Sam. know what? What strikes me as funny about his comments is that right now Duke's general reputation as a program is that. They get all these one-and-done players, and they do the best that they can with them, and then, and then those guys leave. Um, that's been the case now for four or five years in the program. For, I think, many years prior to that, there was some criticism of Coach K because he had all these talented guys. They often stayed three or four years, and at least this, this was my perspective. I, I don't know how you guys no you're right you're right uh, look there was there I was remember a, when, a, when grant hill when grant hill stayed when jason yeah. williams stayed there were a there lot of guys who stayed at duke and people were like uh, you know those guys could have left earlier there was and there was a perception that coach k the reason that duke didn't have as many dominant nba players was that coach k was like a system quote coach I'm, I'm i'm making air quotes coach k was a system coach and that he made the players adapt to his system and therefore guys like I, I, yeah, Grant Hill would be a good example of 
Grant Hill wasn't able to really do what he could do in Coach K's system and that he would have to go to the league um, and that Coach K would then try to recruit guys who weren't as good because he needed guys who fit this. It, it was a totally ridiculous, probably Maryland fan type narrative. But um, now fast forward and Duke's getting, I, I guess it's criticism from Gary Trent Sr. that they've got too much talent and they can't fit it together. Ultimately, when Coach K makes the recruiting pitch, part of it is I want you to be you know, successful in life, but also I want you to be successful here. And I want... I want the team to succeed and win national championships. And when the players get on camera, to the to the program's credit, when the players are on camera and they are on camera a lot, they say, we're here to win championships. We're here to get hardware. We're here to cut nets. That is all part and parcel of being in the Duke program. And they celebrate that. You know, Duke doesn't, even, doesn't hang banners for like the early season tournaments, like the PK-80s and the Maui Invitationals. But they take that stuff seriously. And after those tournaments, they all come home and there's quotes every year. It feels like it's the same quotes every year about how going to those tournaments is a great experience for getting, you know, for being in in a in an elimination game and and feeling like there's something on the line and they're there to win championships. If they really buy into that mentality, then it should make sense that the parents and the players look at the whole scheme and 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 all the and all the practice and the preparation and say the immediate goal is to win games and win championships coach k wants the players to be successful and wants them to go on to long careers but in the here and now the most important thing is to win championships and i think he would tell you that i think all the most successful players at duke will tell you that and i think for the most part you'll hear them say in the pursuit of championships you will learn to be the best version of yourself I maybe there's a version of the team that we that just finished the season in the Elite Eight that featured Gary Trent somehow more, even though Gary Trent just set the fresh Duke freshman record for most threes made in a game. Maybe there's a, a universe where Gary Trent is the most important player on the team and they make it to the final four. I don't know if that's the case. Duke was pretty talented this year. And I think in the case of Duval, that the pieces didn't necessarily fit together kind of exactly the way we wanted them to. Uh, and that was sort of addressed. There's a Ringer article about it that um, it, I think gets some things right and maybe a lot of things wrong. Oh, but, oh, it gets very. It, mm-hmm. What do you think it gets right? That Ringer article sucks. Well, I and understand it's factually, it's factually incorrect in a there, number. There, there, there is a lot of stuff in it that, that is incorrect. The thing I think says, it gets. He says, "Wait, wait." The author of that article. I'm not going to say his name. I'm not going to give him clicks. I don't want to give him any attention. The author of that article at one point says. Trevon Duval was is uh, only has a wingspan of six three six uh, six three and a half, and he was forced to play in a zone where he couldn't utilize um, his quickness and the such. It's like it's yeah, like that's ridiculous. All, uh, so Trevon I'm, Duval has a seven foot wingspan, and he was awesome in the zone, and it utilized his abilities perfectly. He got tons of steals. It it's so the art that article is of stupid. I think the thing that it touches on and is not necessarily a fault of the coaching staff at Duke is that Duval, and, and we talked about this, the team didn't, there, there wasn't enough space in the interior for the team to operate on offense the way that the individual members of it wanted to. Um, but I don't know. It, it's neither here nor there. I think that the, the criticism is interesting and uh, I want, I want Donald to jump in and, and give us his thoughts because th- this stuff is really thought provoking. Um, even if, we all probably tend to agree on its validity. So 
for me, in the end, is all about exposure. And most of these players in high school have a couple of choices. They can go somewhere where they will be the man, the offense is going to revolve around them, and they're going to have the ball in their hands to show off the skills that they need, that they think will get them to the next level. Or they could go somewhere where the amount of exposure that they will have will be greater than any other. And for the latter, you know, where you get the most exposure, it's your blue bloods. It's Duke, UNC, Kentucky, Kansas. For some of these places that, you know, you can just go and kind of be the man, Alabama, Missouri, LSU, A&M, USC. Very rarely will you get both. And for these highly ranked recruits, they have to make that choice. So for these guys that are considering the Blue Bloods, they're betting that the exposure they receive from being on TV for every game, being talked about every night on SportsCenter, playing against the best players, and having that Blue Blood attached to their name will allow them to gain more stature amongst NBA GMs and that their draft status is going to be elevated as a result. Some bet that being the man at a lesser school, being the, the big fish in a little pond, will allow them to have the ball more, score more, rebound more, and then that will get them the status. But very rarely is a recruit going to a blue blood school and command the attention that, uh, with regards to the offense that a lesser school can offer. So when, for example, Trayvon Duval has his final five was Duke, Arizona, Baylor, Kentucky, um, Baylor, Kansas, and Seton Hall, he was making that very decision. Go somewhere like Seton Hall or Baylor where he can be the big man on campus or go to Duke, Arizona, or Kansas and be a part of a collective, a network, dare I say, a brotherhood. He chose the latter. So it's, you know, it's almost disingenuous to say that these guys should have expected to get the ball more and be the focal point of the offense when they were recruited to be part of something bigger than their individual selves. And that is why they, that's what they highlighted when they committed to Duke. And that's what they're still saying today that they're leaving Duke. So I think that's really my my thing is, you know, they forget that the exposure is helping them in a way. And that's kind of what they bet again, bet for uh, is that they bet that the exposure that they get from being at Duke, being at Kentucky, being at Kansas, that these schools will help them later on down the line. And, and that's why we have so many of those blue blood programs uh, represented in the NBA. So that's kind of where I'm at with this. Uh, look, uh, my last word on this relates to the NBA and the NBA draft. And because because that's that's the bottom line for most of these guys. And uh, Wendell Carter and Marvin Bagley both enhanced their NBA draft stock this year at Duke. Um, I would argue that Gary Trent also did. Most of the preseason mock drafts thought Gary Trent probably would be at Duke for more than one year that he probably wouldn't be one and done. And even if he was one and done, he was considered, you know, maybe a fringe first rounder. A lot of folks seem to think that he has a chance to go in the top 20 or so in the draft. Wherever he goes, he's coming out after one year. And the NBA is very clear on, on his skill set, on, on his major skill, which is outside shooting, because they saw a lot of it at Duke. Um, Trevon Duvall is the one guy who, whose draft stock pretty clearly suffered coming to Duke. Um, a lot of people thought when he first arrived on campus that, that Duval would be, you know, right around the end of the lottery. And, uh, and, and most of the consensus now is that he's probably just barely outside the first round. Um, but the, the idea that that's Duke, Duval's problem, the reason Duval has fallen in mock drafts, the reason the NBA is questionable, questionable about him is that he's not a good shooter. 
you know, his free throw percentage was less than 60% on the year. Uh, and and uh, he, he hit something 20 something percent of his three pointers. And the ability to shoot from the outside is a really, 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 really important thing in the NBA. And that's the weakest part of his game. Is it Duke's fault that that's the weakest part of his game? I don't think so. It's not like he arrived on campus with a gorgeous looking stroke and a reputation as a great shooter. And it suddenly broke when he was at Duke. His reputation coming in was that he was sort of a spotty shooter and people were a little concerned about that. And he went on throughout the course of the season to absolutely show that that is his weakness. Not Duke's fault that that's his weakness. I'm sure Coach K and the Duke assistant coaches worked really hard with him on it. We lost games because occasionally we would put the ball in his hands down the stretch and gave him a shot to be a, pr a pressure free throw shooter, and he failed. That's just reality at it. And, and so uh, this notion that these guys, you know, sublimated some portion of their game and came to Duke and hurt their draft stock or something like that, it's, it's a fallacy. It's not true. It's not backed up by any facts, and it's not Duke's fault. And I can list a whole heck of a lot of Duke players in the NBA who came to Duke, saw their draft stock either stay really high or go really high. And as a result, they've had very rich, very successful careers. Kyrie Irving, Brandon Ingram, Jason Tatum, Jabari Parker. I mean, these are guys who came to Duke and, and are really, really successful in the NBA. Luke Kennard wasn't supposed to be at you know, wasn't supposed to be a two-year player and then a lottery pick. Justice Winslow wasn't supposed to be a lottery pick. Tyus Jones wasn't supposed to be one and done. Duke has helped a heck of a lot of players to be really, really successful NBA players, to have good careers and make a shit ton of money. And the idea that Gary Trent and Trevon Duvall made a mistake coming to Duke is just, it's so laughable. It's silly. I, I, I can't say anything more about it than that. All right, we are going to close out this episode with parting shots, and I will start with you, Jason. So I've got something that relates to the NBA draft that I want to talk about just very, very quickly. Um, and it, it, we will definitely be doing a podcast or two <laughs> around the draft, and I'm sure that there will be draft conversation um, and I'll go, oh, you know what? I should have saved my parting shot for, for that future podcast. But screw it. I'm doing it now. Um, gentlemen, what year is it? 2018. So 2014 would be how many years ago? Four. Four years ago. In 2014, at the NBA draft, Fran Fraschilla gave one of the best, greatest pieces of analysis in the history of the draft. Do you all know what I am talking about? I do not, but you're going to tell us. Fran Fraschilla famously said when the Toronto Raptors made the 20th pick in the 2014 draft, he said that the player they picked was two years away from being two years away. I'm talking about Bruno Caboclo. Do, do you guys remember this? I, I, I don't, but I, I want to hear how this continues. Yeah. So Fraschilla said that this guy – from Brazil, Bruno Caboclo was two years away from being two years away. And everyone laughed, and it was hysterical. And it was his way of saying, this guy's so raw, you can't even say he's two years away from being great. He's a couple years away from being able to say he's two years away from being great. So that was four years ago. 
We are now in 2018. Two plus two is four. We are at the moment that Bruno Caboclo should have arrived, according to Fran Fraschilla. So a couple days ago, I'm looking through box scores and I for the NBA, and I stopped to check on the Sacramento Kings against the Minnesota Timberwolves because the Kings had beaten the Timberwolves, which is just utter, unbelievably embarrassing. The Timberwolves are playing for the playoffs, and the Kings are trying to lose games. They're actively trying to tank. They're one of you know six or seven teams that don't want to win games. So I'm looking through the box score, wondering how on earth this happened, and I see the name Bruno Caboclo. Now, he didn't play in that game. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't even get into games for the Sacramento Kings. But the guy who was two years away from being two years away is in the NBA. And he, this season for both Toronto and Sacramento, Toronto traded him to Sacramento. He has played in 11 games. Um, he is averaging 2.4 points per game. And his rookie contract is finally up. And so Bruno Caboclo, who was two years away from being two years away four years ago, has arrived and it looks like he's going to leave as soon as he has arrived. That's my parting shot. Well, he played more games than I have so far in my career, but all of us, in fact, there's still time for me to catch up. Yeah. He's making $2.4 million this year. How ridiculous is that? It's not bad. I'll take it. I'll take it. Sit on the bench. Um, My parting shot is also in the NBA and it involves a friend of the podcast and one of the, our, at least my favorite uh, Duke players of all time, Quinn Cook, did so well for the Golden State Warriors this year in the absence uh, of Stephen Curry to injury and Klay Thompson to injury and, and everyone else that, that the Golden State Warriors have had injured. He has emerged as one of their bright stars. And because of that, he recently, I think two days ago, signed a two-year deal with the Golden State Warriors. He will remain in the Bay Area for two years to be on one of the best teams in the NBA, and I think it's fantastic. It's honestly the way that he's played over the last uh, couple of months. Uh, you know, we, we interviewed him. It was it seemed like a couple months ago, and he was just starting to go back and forth between the Golden State Warriors and their G League affiliate. But he has basically been on the Golden State Warriors full time since then, and has really emerged as one of their go-to players. Uh, he made. He's going to make the playoff roster. He is now one of them. He is a, not no longer a two-way player. He is a Golden State Warrior. Congratulations to Quinn Cook. Awesome, awesome, awesome. So uh, really quickly, I want to mention about this. We don't know exactly what his contract is yet. You said he signed. He hasn't signed yet. He won't sign till tomorrow, Tuesday. We're recording this Monday night. He will sign tomorrow, Tuesday, because every dollar that Golden State pays to him is is dollars that they are over the luxury tax limit, and so they need to limit how much they pay him. Um, because it, it really impacts their bottom line in a pretty significant way uh, because of the, the nature of the, the luxury tax. So they're, not, they're waiting till the last possible day to sign him. They've reached an agreement, but he hasn't put his signature on the bot- dotted line. I'm going to be really interested in seeing how much they pay him because I think he's shown he's worth more than the NBA minimum, but it's entirely possible they're going to only pay him the NBA minimum. Although even that would be, I think it'd be $800,000 this year, and like 1.1 million next year. That works for me too. That 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 is pretty good work if you can get it. And yeah, I, I like we said earlier, the the DBR podcast bump is real. So any uh, legitimate Duke people who listen to the show, you know, you come on here and good things happen to you.
And you know what? We're not fully expecting it, but Quinn Cook, if you're out there, if you're listening, if you want to give us a little kickback for, you know, for the DBR bump, as we say, uh, you know, our email address is dbrpodcast at gmail.com. Send us a little email and we can, we can, we can accept. He can sponsor. He could sponsor. He could sponsor sponsor. a whole episode if he wants to. That's, that would be okay with me. Um, Sam, we left the parting shots. Normally the host goes last, but you know what? You have a special announcement and we want to give it to you. The floor is yours. All right. So I have been sitting on this little piece of news for a few months. You guys have known about it, but the listeners do not. So for the three plus years, I guess four seasons that we have done this show, we have been Donald in Washington, uh, Jason in Atlanta and Sam in Denver. And starting this summer, I will now be uh, Sam in Durham because I am going uh, back to Duke in the fall uh, to do the two-year full-time MBA program at the Fuqua School of Business. Uh, I'm really excited about this. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's been something I've been thinking about for a while, and uh, I'm psyched to be going back to school. Specifically, I'm psyched to be going back to Duke before I, get, before I continue sort of with what happens here with us. Um, I wanted to give a shout out to Jason Evans, our our co-host here, uh, because he wrote one of my uh, letters of recommendation for the school. So thank you, Jason. And and by the way, it it shows how foolish and pathetic Duke must be to have let you in because any letter a, of recommendation from me is worth nothing. I can't second, imagine. They let, me in, they let me in again. They let me go through the whole engineering program once, and now they're letting me come back for business. So uh, congrats, the, man. Hey, major props. Duke is a business school. My brother went to Fuqua. It's an amazing business school and huge congrats to you. Um, and the podcast will benefit from your close proximity to the program, I'm sure. Yeah. So, um, and, and I also wanted to give a quick shout. I didn't, I didn't check with them ahead of time, but I know of at least one of my fellow incoming classmates and uh, one of the deans at Fuqua who listened to the program. So shout out to you guys. Um, and anybody else who I met during orientation weekend a couple months ago, who I, who found out about the show and now listens, uh, welcome, uh, glad to have you and, uh, and can't wait to be there. And as for the show, like Jason alluded to, uh, it's going to be great, I think, to have one of us in Durham because we should get a little bit more access to the, to the Duke program. Um, certainly uh, we'll, we'll, we'll certainly get more press access than we've gotten previously. I think we've gotten a little taste of that this year between my experience and Jason's experience. So hopefully we have more of that. I think that also, hopefully, it'll be an opportunity for the three of us to get together because we will all be in closer geographic proximity. So uh, maybe finally we'll all get to be in one place at one time to do a show or go to a Duke game. Um, so uh, more to come about about how this changes the program. Ultimately, it doesn't really change the fact that we're still going to be on. We're still going to do the podcast as regularly as we have the last four seasons. Nothing about that is going to change, but hopefully it means um, better access for us and therefore better access for you, the listeners. So uh, I'm going to be making that move back east uh, over the summer, and you guys will hear more about it as it's happening. Sam, I want you to keep track of how often you run into someone, introduce yourself, and they go, "Wait a second, are you the Sam Klein from the podcast?" Because <laughs> well, if it's more, so, if it's more than like one or two, I'm going to be really impressed. So the the I, I mentioned that we had this orientation weekend a couple months ago for admitted students, and um, the the dean that I mentioned who 
who said that he listens to the show, um, said it like he, he mentioned it in front of like a large group of of incoming students and some current students. He was like, yeah, he, he was kind of the, the the school. If you're not familiar and I imagine most listeners are not familiar, um, one of the one of the essays that you have to write for the admissions process is is just a list of 25 interesting facts about yourself. And the the prompt is really open ended. It's just 25 interesting things, whatever you want to say about yourself. And so one of the things, of course, that I mentioned was that I do this show and they were going through the the 25 interesting facts, They like everybody's essays. And during one of these orientation activities, um, one of the leaders got up and and said, I'm just going to mention some some random facts from from people's essays. And he 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 mentioned me and he mentioned the podcast because he was like, and we have somebody in here who does a show that I listen to. So. Um, so that was really cool and, and was a good bump, I think, for us because he said it in front of the in front of the whole room. So um, my reaction, of course, um, in that moment, even though I I didn't know exactly how that was going to come out, um, I stood up and I was like, yep, hi, that's me. And uh, Duke Basketball Report, make sure you find us on iTunes and Stitcher and Google and subscribe and leave us five star reviews. And uh, thanks very much. So um, hopefully we got some new listeners out of that. And again, uh Hello to all those new listeners that we got who are uh, going to school with me. Uh, let's let's we're going to wrap it up. But before I do, Sam, congratulations It's going to be good to have you down in Durham. Um, you have one requirement. This is one requirement and it's very important. Okay. Make sure wherever you live has a comfortable couch because I'm probably going to use it multiple times. All right. Well, I'll, I'll see you there. <laughs> and that is going to do it for us here on episode 117 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. As always, find us on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio. And as, Jay, as Sam said, please leave nice cushy reviews to keep us warm at night. If you have something you want to point out that Jason or Sam did wrong or that I did right, email us at dbrpodcast at gmail.com. We thank you all out there for listening. We will check you soon. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, Jason. And thank you, Ed Armstrong, for joining us tonight. For now, Duke Band, take us home. <laughs>